Hello and welcome to both the listeners and the panellists on today's In and Gut podcast, where we will be discussing the use and enforceability of post-termination restrictions in the employment relationship. My name is Naomi Latham and I'm an Employment and Partnership Associate at CM Murray and, and will be chairing the discussion today. In terms of our wonderful speakers from our In and Guard Alliance, we have Ulf Gurk of Seats in Germany, who advises international and national companies as well as executives from all sectors on individual and collective employment law. We've got Regan O'Driscoll of CC Solicitors in Ireland. And now Regan advises employers and employees on all aspects of the employment relationship, both contentious and non-contentious. And Jeff Michelson of Veld Law in Belgium. He specialises in labour law and social security law. And then finally, we have Meryl April of CM Murray also. And Meryl specialises in employment and partnership law and has developed an international employment practice, which covers both contentious and non-contentious matters. Now, many listeners may already know, but for those who don't, post-termination restrictions are generally found in contracts of employment and they seek to prevent an employee, for example, from competing with a business for a specified period of time after the employment relationship ends. And more generally, post-termination restrictions are included to protect the employer's relationships with its customers, its confidential information and the stability of its workforce. So to begin our discussion today, I thought we could take a look at how employers in different jurisdictions compensate or indeed do not compensate employees for the duration of their post-termination restrictions. And Regan, if I come to you first, if you could explain to us what the position is in Ireland, please. Yeah, it's not common really for employers to compensate employees uh, for post-termination restrictive covenants. You do, on rare occasions, see some measure of consideration in a termination agreement for somebody agreeing to post-termination restrictions, but it's 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 rare enough, and it tends to be more in the kind of tech sector. Um, I mean, I've seen figures as low as a hundred euro being paid for somebody agreeing to abide by the restrictive covenants that are already in their employment contract. So, uh, as I said, it would it wouldn't really be seen as something that's particularly helpful. It's certainly it's something a judge might take account of if it was adequate consideration, if it was something a bit higher than a hundred euro. But it's not the only thing that a judge is going to be looking at when deciding whether to enforce um, a restriction. They're going to look at actually the the reasonableness of the restriction itself, whether, for example, it's been coupled with the person being off on garden leave for an extended period of time, uh, whether there are legitimate business interests that need to be protected, uh, whether this person could actually damage those, and whether this the restriction that's been uh, imposed is the minimum amount necessary to protect it. Judges don't really like uh, restrictions in Ireland. I mean, they see them as a breach of the Competition Act. Um, because once somebody leaves employment, they're essentially in a separate undertaking and two undertakings shouldn't be acting in a way to restrict competition in, in a particular sector. So they they tend not to enforce them if they have any possible reason not to. Uh, it's probably a bit of a, you know, a broad statement, but it's, it's generally seen as true. So, yeah, reasonableness, minimum amount necessary, all that kind of thing. Compensation isn't something that's been seen as a significant factor. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and Ulf, is it the same? Is it the same position? Sorry, um, with employers in Germany, and and if so, does that position originate from case law, or is it from a body of legislation? Uh, actually, it's both. Uh, the most important actually is statutory, so that is part of the commercial code, and uh, so there is a need to um, to pay compensation. So you have to observe quite a number of requirements relating to the scope content and implementation of such restrictions. 
But in particular, you have to observe a maximum duration of two years and the employee has to be paid a so-called waiting compensation. And that compensation must at least amount to half of the total remuneration. So taking into account all bonuses and benefits and whatever there is for the duration of the obligation. So that is actually this this the main set that the, the compensation has already been used into the commercial code in 1914 and it's gradually been kind of moved to, to cover all employees and is nowadays also seen as uh, the set of rules as an embodiment of the constitutional principle of occupational freedom. So it serves to protect competition and uh, the employee. And, and Jeff, um, coming to you then, it would be interesting to hear whether that same uh, type of legal duty exists in Belgium. Yes, it's very similar to the German situation. Our Employment Contracts Act uh, prescribes the duty to pay half of the employee's total remuneration for the duration of the, the covenant. The covenant itself must explicitly describe this duty of payment, otherwise there's already a first risk of uh, nullity. There's one exception, uh, sales representatives can't claim compensation for the enforceability of a non-compete covenant, and when there's no duty to pay, it doesn't happen. I think generally speaking, as is the case in Germany, uh, Belgium has strict legal conditions that have to be met for these non-compete covenants. Another example, in, in practice, uh, the employee has to earn a bit more than 70,000 euros on annual basis for the clause to be uh, valid. It's a condition that can be altered by collective bargaining agreements, but there are hardly any. And so what is peculiar that while there are a lot of strict conditions leading up to a lot of existing non-compete covenants that probably nowadays are in principle not valid, only the employee can call upon this nullity, this irregularity. And that's why we see a lot of employers who forget to waive the effect of the non-compete, thinking oh, the covenant isn't valid anyways these employers will end up paying the compensation uh, nevertheless because it's only up uh, upon the employee to call in the nullity. It's not upon uh, the employer. And so often they'll end up paying this compensation even when they thought it wasn't necessary at all. Thank you. And taking the other end of the spectrum, and I know from my experience that it's not common to see payments being made to employees the duration of their um, post-termination restrictions. But it would be great to hear whether you still find this to be the case, Meryl. Yes, thanks, Mary. Listening to Jeff, I was somewhat relieved, actually, that uh, we don't have a culture of, of having to pay for post-termination restrictions. But much more common is a use of garden leave, as, as Regan touched on. So obviously, that is the situation where notice has been given by one party or the other, and the employer then triggers an express garden leave clause. There could be problems if there is no express clause, um, but they, they trigger the express clause and they ask the employee not to deal with customers, not to deal with third parties like the bank or other key suppliers, not to contact certain colleagues except for HR. And so it effectively works to, to freeze them out of the market. And of course, they are being paid during that period. And... Um, I think that there's a tradition in, in the UK, obviously, that is a case law 
this is a case law area where where it's um, governed by the common law and the courts have taken the view that they won't specifically enforce by injunction a covenant for someone to work for for an employer and so they talk about um, not wanting to make the employee choose between starvation and enforced idleness so um, a garden leave clause in a way gets around that because they are forced to be idle in the court's words but they're not going to starve because they're being paid um i think i think the other thing to mention and i think this probably does happen across a number of jurisdictions but we're seeing it a lot in the uk is use of what we're calling atypical restrictive covenants so that's where you've got deferred remuneration where perhaps one of the performance conditions is that uh, you mustn't go and join a competitor or long-term incentive plans where there's malice and clawback clauses and, and they might relate to hidden nasties in the accounts coming out later but they, they might also relate to the, the behavior of that particular individual so again there is in that situation they will be paid if they stay out of the market but if they choose to go and compete they stand to maybe lose a, a lot of uh, money or equity and um I know actually in this alliance we've worked um some of us on these situations where you know you might have a UK contract and then you might have an incentive scheme in another jurisdiction so it's a, it's a common thing and a good thing to collaborate on actually now that you say that Meryl um I did have a deferred consideration issue with post termination restricted covenants in one case in the end it wasn't agreed the employee didn't trust the employer that they would ultimately pay so um, I don't know, something, some other arrangement was reached, but it was certainly attempted here in that oh, case. Interesting. Yeah. And thank you both. Taking all of what has been said into consideration, are there any potential reforms in the pipeline for each, uh, when I say respective jurisdiction? Uh, for instance, I know that in the UK, we're still waiting <laughs> for the response to the government consultation um, on restrictive covenants, which coming back to you, Meryl, you might be able to explain some in more detail. Um, yeah, I think there's been a couple of attempts to consult about this, uh, 2016, and then that sort of dropped away. And then after the pandemic, there was a lot of rhetoric about we need to be, uh, and maybe maybe Brexit had something to do with it too, but there was a lot of rhetoric about needing to be a competitive environment for entrepreneurs and needing to make sure there weren't undue fetters on competition and on business. Um, and so the government started an, another uh, consultation in 2020, uh, and I think they got all the replies in by February 2021. Um, but the last we heard um, was in March of this year, and uh, the relevant minister at the time said, uh, well, we do still intend to produce some sort of output from this consultation, but we don't know what and um, we don't know when. However, what I can just say quickly is that a couple of options were being considered. Uh, one was what we tend to think of rather inaccurately as a sort of European model, i.e. where there's mandatory financial compensation um, and whether a reasonable level should be paid. This only relates to non-compete although the consultation said that the government was interested in whether or not these options might also apply to non-solicitation and non-dealing covenants. They were looking at this so-called European model where you would pay to keep someone out of the market and possibly on top of that to go along with it a transparency obligation which means that there must be in writing at the beginning of the relationship a clear clause 
saying what the non-compete obligation is. And secondly, maybe imposing for the first time a statutory maximum, whereas at the moment that is on a case-by-case basis, although as a rule of thumb, normally around 12 months for a non-compete. And then option two, other end of the scale, so-called Californian model, which is just banning non-competes altogether. So uh, in terms of predicting, I think probably we're not uh, looking at banning them completely. The general view in the consultations seem to be they work quite well. The courts have been applying the various principles, which are very similar to the principles Regan talked about, uh, very effectively and working out whether or not they think the relevant interest, normally protection of confidential information, needs to be protected by a non-compete or not. Thank you. And, and and Jeff, I know that you have already spoken about employers having a duty to compensate an employee for half of the length of their non-compete period. And it sounds like the UK may well be um, catching up with that approach in due course. However, are there any other reforms or recent developments that you can share with us? There are none concerning non-compete governance. Uh, we do expect uh, employers to take another look at another restrictive covenant, the, the exclusivity covenants, clauses, Um, restricting employees to work simultaneously for another uh, employer during the period of uh, active employment. Because exactly eight days ago, a new law came into effect as a consequence of a directive of the European Parliament and Council on transparent and predictable working conditions. And this new law actually prohibits employers to prevent uh, employees from working simultaneously for other employers for instance, via these uh, exclusivity covenants, except for a couple uh, bylaw regulated situations. So it's a restrictive uh, covenant, not post-contractual, but nonetheless worth mentioning, that will have to be treated uh, differently. Thank you. And I can well imagine you're bi- you've been busy, sorry, um, getting to grips with that new piece of law being introduced. And then as I understand it, I don't believe there's any Uh, potential reforms coming in either Ireland or Germany, as may be the case. Correct. I mean, we we have the same, obviously, we have to transpose the same directive Belgium does. We still haven't transposed that particular part of it. Apparently, the government are saying it will happen as soon as possible. I think that's a direct quote. But we were supposed to transpose it in August. So it's certainly... And, not just, and there's no sign of a, even any draft legislation. I don't know when that's going to come in. But I think the exclusivity clause is going to be a, a significant change, more psychologically than anything else, really. Uh, I think a lot of employers, when I've spoken to it, have kind of, you know, run screaming in, into the background, go, what are we going to do now? But in reality, I, I you know, I, I wonder whether it will actually, it, there'll be a huge impact in practice. But I think there's going to be an initial shock to the system in terms of getting their heads around it. And how, how do you deal with that, et cetera? That's great. Thank you. Um, so then going back to how post-termination restrictions are used in the employment relationship, Regan, uh, coming back to you, um, do employers in Ireland uh, adopt a different approach when applying post-termination restrictions to partners and directors? Uh, well, I suppose the, the reality is that partners and directors are going to be senior. So if anything, they're going to be the people who you know are most in the line of fire for post-termination restrictive, uh, restrictions. Uh, when it comes to partnerships, like legal partnerships, uh, in my experience, they tend to rely on garden leave, the same system that Merrill described earlier, to just keep people out of competition. So somebody who's a partner in a corporate firm is going to have a uh, a notice period of six months or, you know, or three to six months, depending uh, on the level of seniority. And they're going to be kept out of work for that period. And then they, they'll have a non-solicitation clause, 
potentially as well, where they're not allowed to solicit clients. I mean, it's often the case that when partners join up or when, when a partner, when somebody comes into a partnership, they will bring clients with them and there'll be some agreement at that point that when they leave, they can take those clients with them. And then there might be some dispute at the end about who those people were, whether they're the offshoots from those. Um, but that kind of thing all gets negotiated um, upon termination. But yeah, in principle, no reason why not. All the same sort of questions arise, you know, the legitimate business interests, et cetera. Um, and how, how long have people been kept out of the workforce? Are their skill levels going to be uh, going to be depleted by the amount of time that they have spent out of the workforce? Yeah, I, I'd say that's as much as I could say about that. There's nothing, no real change. Thank you. And Ulf, is, is it the same for partners and directors in Germany? Well, there is a certain kind of a difference um, with regard to, to directors. So those people, directors and officers who are in the company register are not seen as employees, but to be on the employer side. And consequently, they, they are not covered by the labor courts, but by the normal civil courts. And they apply somewhat harder standards. And they have, uh, even though kind of the legal literature is against that, they say that in these cases, you don't need to pay compensation for for those managing directors. Um, so for everyone else, like the, the situation is kind of, uh, generally the legal situation is quite stable. There used to be that you could include uh, non-competition clauses uh, without compensation for highly paid executives, but that has been abolished in 1975 already. So that it might be that this might change somewhat sometime in the future, but it's not to be seen that the civil courts might say, okay, we'll, we will apply the uh, statutory rules regarding waiting compensation too. At the moment, it's not the case. Even I would say most of the um, contracts include a compensation if you have that for these kind of um, executives. So we usually recommend uh, including waiting compensation to cater for the fact that one day the civil courts might change their mind and these things might um, um, be different. And Jeff, is this is it the case story in Belgium that directors are also treated differently when it comes to enforcing their post-termination restrictions? Uh, yes, again, it's very similar to the to the German uh, situation because directors are uh, self-employed uh, in Belgium. So the Employment Contract Acts is not applicable. These strict legal conditions aren't applicable. Doesn't mean that the restricted covenants aren't possible. They are possible. They are less constrained by these uh, legal conditions. There's no duty to pay compensation, and this is very different than the German uh, situation. We will always advise not to foresee a compensation uh, because that might over here trigger uh, the suspicion of false employment. Then the directors are too close to the situation of a, of a regular employee and we really want to uh, avoid that uh, situation. In the absence of legal conditions, the courts have ruled that the scope of the non-compete should still be reasonable on both geographical and content uh, level. So it's it's a judicial test of reasonableness, but it's one that's very strict. The best chance of acceptance of these non-competes arises in case of selling of company, for, in for instance, restricting the possibility of the seller director to immediately start 
competing uh, activities. And when the, co the courts do determine that the covenant isn't reasonable, they have the option to numb it down until it's feasible, which is not an option at all when we're talking about employees. That's really interesting. Uh, thank you. And then finally, um, uh, coming to you, Meryl, I, I know that partners and consultants in the UK might see a, a more lengthier set of restrictions compared to employees. But do you still find this to be the case? Yes, I think it's important, really important to differentiate between consultants and partners. So in relation to consultants, uh, if they've been brought in with specific expertise or they're senior people, uh, name is exactly right. You would still see quite long covenants periods, six to 12 months, maybe for consultants, including possibly even um, sales, salespeople. Uh, and it is generally accepted that they will be enforceable if they're properly drafted. But there's um, one thing you certainly need to watch out for with consultants is if they're contracting through a personal services company. So we have um, IR35 tax legislation that means a lot of consultants do that. And obviously that covenant would then be binding between the, the client company and the personal services company. And if you want to bind the individual, you need them either to be a party, which uh, to Jeff's point would be um, unhelpful because then they might be seen to be an employee or um, you need a side letter to bind that individual. And then in relation to partnerships, that is really interesting and really different because a whole separate body of law has developed in relation to partners. I'm talking true partners. That's probably the first thing you need to determine. Are you looking at a full equity partner in, in legal terms, you know, a sort of owner partner or are you looking at some sort of fixed share or salaried partner but if you're talking at a true partner either in an LLP or a general partnership then it's felt that there are not the same issues in terms of inequality of bargaining power that partners are broadly equal and able to negotiate you know fairly with the firm that they're a part of and the key leading case in partnership in the UK is still Bridge and Deacons the 1984 case, I think, in Hong Kong, and there a five-year non-compete covenant was upheld against Bridge when he left and, and set up uh, in an attempt to compete with Deacons. So whilst it's an old case, and there are some commentators that say a case on similar facts might be decided differently now, it is an issue, particularly if you're acting for senior execs, because, you know, senior exec partner, because potentially very long periods could be enforceable. And I would just add to that that, um, therefore, guard, as, as Regan said, garden leave is very commonly used in professional services, law firms, financial services. Thank you. Then uh, looking at how employers approach uh, post-termination restrictions more generally, um, I thought it'd be helpful to look at how this uh, differs in any way and, and how the courts are then seeking to enforce them. I know from our conversations, Regan, leading up to this podcast, um, you mentioned there was a, a recent uh, High Court case in Ireland um, that looked at this in greater detail. Yeah, Bellew versus Ryanair. Um, now, it was just before COVID, uh, so it's probably not as recent as it feels because there's that weird time lapse that has resulted from um, everyone being out of commission for a couple of years. But um, yeah, it was it was the first big case that there had been in a while, and it's kind of changed the way everybody's looking at these the, the clauses that are in existence and the clauses that are coming into existence now. Uh, Mr. Bellew was the COO of Ryanair from about 2017, 
And as you'd expect for someone in that kind of position is extremely senior, you're going to expect to see, and Lo and Bodhi did have, uh, a long post-termination restriction of 12 months. That's about as long as you would see, really, certainly in this jurisdiction. I've definitely um, had some US clients who've, who've asked for longer ones, but we always say, look, that's, this is about as long as you'd expect to see or expect to be enforced. And in fact, the court didn't have an issue with the duration, which is uh, interesting as far as it goes. So he he left in or around, I think, the end of, when did he go? Sometime in the around the end of 2019. And then he went off to work for Easy EasyJet the day after his termination. And of course, Ryanair, didn't take that well. And they went after him. They went, they, they tried to injunct him in the high court in Dublin. So the court had a look at the clause that, that applied to his, his termination. As I, I said earlier, they don't like enforcing these things. So they they had a look at it and it, it specifically said there was an unsolicited, which wasn't the issue. The, the non-compete said, be employed, engaged, concerned, or interested in any capacity in any business wholly or partly in competition with the company for air passenger services in any market. And, and I think that there are a lot of words in there that I think prior to the value decision would have probably been common in these kind of clauses here, you know, it's, that you wouldn't go and work in any capacity for any competitor. But here they did say in any uh, business wholly, what is this for air passenger services? So the court had a problem with two aspects of that. I tend to go on a lot about the in any capacity bit, but actually they equally had an issue with the, the any type of um, air passenger business. They said that was too broad. So Ryanair had a, a right, and they, they said that you absolutely have legitimate business interests to protect. This guy was your COO. Obviously, he's going to have access to confidential information that you're going to want to protect. There's no problem there. But you really should only need to protect yourselves against other low-cost airlines. Saying all airlines is a problem. So it's too broad. And then the other thing, which is the one, as I said, people make or people are still remain very excited about is the in any capacity bit, because that would be so common or would have been so common before before this decision. They said that would mean that Mr. Value, who is actually the COO of your company, couldn't go and work somewhere else as an air steward or a pilot. Like he, he wouldn't be able to work in any way. Like or as I say, usually say to clients, couldn't be the, you know, the cleaner for one of your competitors. Um, and that's too broad. And the court said on that, on those bases. The whole thing is gone and knocked out the whole thing. And so he was happy, happily working for EasyJet after that. Where he is right now, I have no idea. But um, I suppose the nature of these things that your name becomes synonymous with some, you know, significant development in the law. I'm sure that wasn't exactly what he expected. But I, I would talk about the value decision probably once a week. And I'm not alone uh, in Irish employment law. So that has had a significant impact on how we draft, draft these clauses and also in how we, when we're advising, you know, I, I, as I said, as I think you mentioned early, Naomi, uh, I advise employers and employees. So when an, a senior exec comes to me who's looking to leave and they want to know, is this going to be enforced against me? If any capacity is in it, I say, oh, you're happy. Hey, you're off you go. And if the employer comes to me saying, are we going to be able to enforce this and any in any capacities in it, I say, well, look, you, you probably have a problem there because the high court was very clear that that's not OK. So, yeah, it, it, it has a, a it's had a massive impact. I think we had discussed as well, I think that one of the big aspects of that, which people listening, uh, well, I'm sure they're probably not asking this question, but in case they do, why couldn't it have been reduced or why couldn't have the judge stepped in and just changed the clause? They don't do that. And I, I'm pretty, I, as I understand it, they don't do that, that in the UK either. Um, there was a case that I remember from around about 2010 where a judge actually stepped in and reduced the duration from six to four months. But I cannot find a written decision on it. I think there wasn't a written decision. I think it was kind of, it was a vacation decision um, when the courts were off. 
Um, but there was a there was one time that happened, and I think it was very much a once-off kind of unicorn event. But it just goes to show that anything can happen in litigation, and that's you know litigation risk is something you you just cannot you cannot predict what might happen when you go into a courtroom. Which is one of the reasons why so there are so few of these cases because everybody's terrified of what might happen and then the legal costs that result. So it sounds like to some extent, um, whilst courts are reluctant to enforce post-termination restrictions, it certainly doesn't stop employers from putting them into contracts by any means. Oh, no. Well, it's the deterrent effect, really, isn't it? Because employees don't necessarily know that. Um, so, you know, and and, they're, and sometimes they're willing to take the risk to see if their employer will. And, and all, very often there's correspondence where the employer is saying, you know, you, you shouldn't be competing, etc. And people are writing back to each other and then nothing happens. That, that's That's relatively common. No, that, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, and then, Jeff, do you do you find that employees in Belgium tend to insert an array of post-termination restrictions, or is that simply just not the case? Well, they certainly have this tendency to insert non-compete covenants into a lot of employment contracts, even when there's no point at all, except for maybe the strategy to have your employee a bit afraid of what they can do after the employment contract. But uh, the problem here is, as I have explained, it's not upon the employer to then later say, okay, this clause isn't valid, so I don't have to pay. It's a really a big risk to insert these clauses when you don't want to use them uh, in the end. My advice to Belgian employers listening would really be have another thought about whether you want to have it in your contract, yes or no, because you might end up, as a lot of employers do, paying a compensation for a covenant that you forgot to waive uh, and then paying an employee that in reality will hardly be able to really compete. And Ulf, do employees in Germany have the same sort of default position as, as, as Belgium? No, no, I say rather to the contrary. So um, post-termination restrictions on competition are quite rare. So I'd say maybe 10%. So more for for executive um, employees or people, of, of course, who have a high value like because of their knowledge in technical terms and in, in particular in sales. And we do encourage our clients employers to think about the cost-benefit situation if they want to have it. So it's same as like you may also use, of course, the the garden leave, so the notice period, and especially with executive employees, you tend to have three to six months of notice period. And under the notice period, if you do it correctly, you still have a you also have a, a non-competition obligation. So that might be sufficient. So normally you try to have this discussion when someone is hired or then uh, well the discussion whether it should be waived but the problem with the waiver is if you waive it it will become kind of the the restriction will fall away immediately but the obligation to pay compensation will remain in force for a year minus notice period so if you have uh, one year so and you have six months of, of notice periods it will be another another six months you have to pay the waiting compensation Otherwise, in general, I think the situation is comparable to, to Belgium. So there's a huge risk for the employer that if it's not completely wrong, the, the covenant will be non-binding. So it means the employee can choose if he abides to it and collects the money 
or he just says, well, I don't care, I go to the competition. So it's it's a it's a perfect situation for the employee if he has proper, of course, proper advice. So there's a huge risk. And uh, so you can do things wrong with the scope, with the remuneration, compensation, all that stuff. So in general, that's why I think employees in Germany have learned the lessons. So they tend to refrain from using these, these covenants. Thank you, Ulf. Um, now, I know that in the UK, post-termination restrictions always a hot topic of conversation and, and that we've had some recent case law from both uh, Supreme Court and the High Court that have revisited or relooked at the UK's restraint of trade doctrine. Um, Meryl, would it be fair to say that employers are prepared to enforce and take legal action um, in respect of these post-termination restrictions? Yeah, absolutely. We we see that in our practice that employers are quite keen on the on the remedy of an injunction because uh, it really grabs the attention of um, the parties involved. And obviously, you can get to court very quickly. And if you can enforce your covenant, then uh, by and large, you don't end up having to go to trial, although you have to be willing to, because then a, a deal can be done. So it, it's a fantastic weapon in the in the armory of the employer, I guess. And you do you do see them, um, and particularly I would say non-competes, because we we often talk in the UK about there being a sort of ebb and flow of enforceability, and whether it's an employer-friendly sort of market or or vice versa. And I think we have seen a couple of um, non-competes for quite long periods for CEOs and CFOs, you know, C-suite people being enforced to protect that company's confidential information. So one example was Gemini Europe and Soya in 2020. And then just this year, AstraZeneca and GSK, obviously huge rivals, big roles to play in the pandemic and producing vaccinations and so on. They have huge amounts of confidential information. And if that is of the quality of a trade secret or at that end of the scale, as opposed to just the individual's knowledge and skill, it's very possible to get a non-compete to protect your confidential information, prevent that individual going to the competitor immediately and, um, you know, perhaps deliberately or even inadvertently sharing secrets that would enable the competitor to get an advantage. And I know uh, this is not strictly speaking an employment case, but maybe is indicative of that ebb and flow of enforceability. There was a really interesting case last year in the Supreme Court. And I guess, you know, you don't get that many cases in the Supreme Court. So it's always interesting. Um, and this one involved a non-disclosure agreement between two law firms. And it was in connection with a potential class action in relation to the VW emissions scandal. And these two firms had um, entered into a non-disclosure agreement in relation to some initial information it gathered from claimants. And one of the firms agreed to not, without the express agreement of the other firm, act for different groups of claimants. Then, of course, inevitably, the collaboration fell apart and it came uh, to be determined whether or not this was an unlawful restraint of trade. And the Supreme Court said uh, it wasn't, even though the agreement lasted for six years and they were willing to enforce the contract. There was also a, a big debate and an important debate about solicitors' undertakings, but that's obviously for another day. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so with the courts appearing to heavily scrutinise post-termination restrictions, 
Are there any, are there, sorry, specific elements of a post-termination restriction, such as their geographical scope, uh, which employers commonly include in their contracts, Jeff? Um, so is this something you, you commonly see in, in Belgium? Yes, the, the geographical scope is, again, one of those strict legal uh, conditions that has to be met, that has to be mentioned as well in the, in the covenant, and that uh, can at best stretch out to the whole of the Belgian territory, which in itself, of course, isn't uh, that big. Fortunately, uh, for companies that can prove an international field of activity or uh, who have their own research uh, department, the scope can be wider, but then still they'll have to be very precise in mentioning uh, the geographic scope in the government itself. And Regan, is this also the case uh, for employees in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to have something that's got a hope of being enforceable, you're going to limit it, limit it in every conceivable way, including the geographical scope. So, I mean, Ireland is, a, is such a small jurisdiction as it stands. It's usually in most of them you'd find, you know, within Ireland, within the island of Ireland or very, very few occasions you might see within Leinster, which is one of the four provinces of Ireland or something like that. I did see one recently enough that was um, that somebody couldn't compete within 50 miles of the employer's main office or something, which for somebody who scored lowest on um, spatial reasoning and their skilled aptitude test, is an annoying clause to have to uh, understand. Um, but yeah, that, that that was a that was a very unusual one. It's it, but it's always there in some way, shape, or form. I say always. Uh, if if anyone has put any care into the drafting of the clause, it will be there. Thank you. Then turning to our final topic and uh, what forms another element of, of a post-termination restriction, it would be interesting to hear and to know whether anti-team move provisions are commonly used in your respective jurisdictions. So for the listeners, these, of course, seek to prevent teams from leaving one employer and moving to a competitor, for example. So if we, we start with you, Ulf. No, no, they are not, not um, common in Germany. I have never seen them used so far. And I would also say that they would be regarded as post-contractual uh, non-competition covenants, which would then trigger the requirement to pay wagering compensation. So that, of course, probably would make that not very uh, well liked by by employers. So um, no, they're not used. Thank you. And I know from my experience that anti-TMU provisions commonly they are used and enforced in the professional services world. But is this also the case with senior execs, Meryl? Yeah, you're, you're right, Naomi. They are common in, in the partnership world, but with senior execs, that is an interesting one. We we are seeing them appearing in contracts. And I think that we have a saying that hard cases make bad law. And I, I suspect this was because there was this very long-running litigation involving Tullet Prebon where... Maybe it wasn't a hard case, but it was just such a bold move where an entire desk left, you know, on the same day and and, and went off to the competitor. And uh, the litigation ran for years. And I, I think since then, lawyers obviously um, looking for more ingenious ways to protect their clients have said, well, maybe we could come up with some kind of drafting that says, if you want to go to a competitor that wouldn't otherwise be caught by the suite of covenants, but someone in the team that used to work with you has already gone there in the last three months or the last six months, then you can't go to that particular competitor. So that type of thing. But there's a lot of sort of academic debate where lawyers say it's going to be impossible to draft these in a way that's enforceable, don't provide enough certainty. So sort of a yes and no. We're seeing them quite a lot. 
and it's always interesting to see one. It's even more interesting to try and draft one. But I haven't actually seen any cases enforcing them as yet in the UK. It's certainly very interesting to draft one, I agree with you. <laughs> um, then coming to you, Jeff, um, can it be said that the same application and use of T-Move um, clauses are also adopted in, in Belgium? It's it's very rare, I think, in Belgium. Uh, employers do use individual non-solicitation uh, covenants. I have never seen a specific anti-T-Move clause. I think that if it does happen, the employer should put its hope on our regulation regarding unfair competition, stating that a team move is a form of unfair competition. But those cases are invariably very difficult and difficult to, to prove. Thank you. And then, Regan, can the same be said for Ireland? What's the position there? I mean, I haven't personally seen one um, and I haven't heard of, of anyone else seeing one as well. I did speak to one colleague who thought she'd seen one, but then um, having thought about it a bit more, she recollected it was a UK contract, which you can it happens here a good bit. You know, you get a because companies would operate between the two countries. What we would see, it occurred to me just now, <laughs> is sometimes where you have things, you know, because teams do move. If they can find any evidence that one member of the team, usually I suppose the, the probably the most senior person, induced the other members to breach their post-termination restrictive covenants, you'll get threats of, you know, the tort of inducement to breach. And that can come up. That's that's a that's a nice little cracker I've used myself, actually, as a way of sort of threatening people. Um, but that's that I have seen that more. Well, yeah, I haven't seen the other thing at all. So I've definitely seen this thing more often. Well, thank you. And, and thank you all for your contributions today. And for what has been very interesting, very productive and, and insightful discussion. So thank you. If there's any other comments from the panellists, please do interrupt me. But otherwise, as a listener, if you are a senior executive, HR advisor or a multinational employer and you would like to discuss the matters that we have been discussing in the podcast today, then please feel free to contact any one of the panellists or do visit the Inangarb website, LinkedIn or Twitter account for more information and contact details. <laughs>